and then we'll take questions and maybe one of us will answer, maybe both will answer, we'll see. And I do like to encourage everybody to come up with at least one question. Go ahead. So speaking to effort and surrender. <laughs> That's a surrender <laughs> Well, effort is uh, in the many lists that the Buddha offered as frameworks for us to reflect on our the nature of our path, the nature of the effort, the the activity that will lead to the dropping away of that which obstructs our vision, that will lead to seeing things as they are. Uh, the Buddha gave many lists of uh, qualities to be developed. In virtually every one, effort appears. So, you know, e- effort is extremely significant in the Buddhist teachings. Um, it's often uh, uh, reflected on as the fourfold effort the effort to guard to to guard against those situations that where we where that which unskillful arises like for example if we, if we know we 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 have a tendency to to say get to seek nibbana through just numbing out, to seek nibbana through just feeling good. If we know we have, say, a problem with alcohol or something like that, and you know, to uh, we might guard against the circumstances that will will uh, where we're, where we might uh, fall away from our intention to avoid that unskillful route. So, so perhaps it wouldn't be you know, wise to just uh, keep walking right in front of the uh, pub or right in front of a, a place where, where, where people are drinking. You know, the effort to guard, the effort to overcome when something's unskillful ari- arising, some, let, let's say, some, some anger, which is not in and of itself evil. But let's say we know that if one gets lost in it and speaks in a way that harms someone that we later regret, then the effort to work with that state to overcome it so that there isn't any harm is is considered you know a really skillful effort. So to guard against unskillful things arising, if something has arisen, to to work to overcome it, to transform it. The effort to the third effort is to to bring up that which is skillful, like presence of mind or or or, or right effort or, or or a friendly heart or. or uh, our wisdom, not only to bring that up, but then to sustain it is the f- is the fourth effort. So, 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 so you know, that's pretty straightforward. But let's say we recognize something as as not being skillful, but then we we're not able to shift it according to our our sense of how how things should be. Like we want to be peaceful, but we we can't be peaceful. Then, then to me, the surrender is about is not the abandoning of effort. To me, surrendering is adjusting our effort. To surrender is also an effort. 
But it's, it's the effort rather than clinging to the idea this has to shift. We've used our willpower. We're, we're not able to shift it, perhaps. Then surrender is helping us uh, refine the effort to learn to how can I see the perfection of this moment? Because it is this way. I mean, as, as I mentioned the other day at Spirit Rock, our, our teacher, Ajahn Chah, used to say, if it shouldn't be this way, it wouldn't be this way. In other words, it is this way because of all sorts of forces. Sometimes our efforts can shift things, sometimes not. So, so then a surrendering is, in a sense, an honoring of it is this way. And that's a subtle effort, the, the effort to soften our relationship to will and the effort then to, rather than pushing and shifting, the effort to receive and savor then we might hear the voices, oh, but this is all wrong. And, it, and we're, so the effort to surrender is to hear those voices. And, uh, you know, th- because we have the word surrender and then the word effort, it sounds either or. But that's just the limitation of language. Actually, that, that there's a continuum between tasting deeply into the suchness of something that can come out of surrender and then with our feet are being more grounded in truth, then sometimes the effort is moving from a, from a place of, of reality rather than just out of our head from some ideal of how it should be. So, so we can have... Surrender doesn't mean to say, oh, I have to for the next hour not do anything or day. It can be in a moment to surrender or longer. And, and then in that not knowing, in that just honoring of how it is, who knows what can arise and so then the effort can come out of truth rather than out of some bias. That's how I, I tend to work, work with it. Does that address your question? So I'll just say a little and then ask Kitty Sarah to say a little more about working with practice um, when there's a lot of pain, when it's very difficult, and the practice uh, comes and goes as you're working with it in um, um, a couple things. One is I think it's very important to remember practice is not one thing. You know, it's not just being mindful. It's not just the practice. Um, The practice is a whole way of um, beginning to relate to ourselves in our life and our difficulty in the moment and especially working with chronic pain it calls for a tremendous amount of compassion and kindness for ourselves uh, or for anybody who's in chronic pain Um, I know working with people who've been ill or dying or in chronic pain that you know, it's it's really nice to think, oh, I'll just be mindful, and then you know I can be with it, and then it'll do whatever it does. It, you know, I'll be with the suchness of it. But in fact, sometimes you can't be with it. The being with it doesn't work. There's not the um, resources or the balance to be with it. And so sometimes going away from it in some way or shape or form actually becomes a skillful part of practice. 
um, you know, because generally the instructions and in work with pain will be to feel it and note it and notice how it changes and notice what happens as you stay present with it. Sometimes that's not possible. And so if we think practice is always one thing, then we're going to add to the suffering. It'll be the second arrow, as the Buddha would say. And so then sometimes going away from the pain, distracting oneself even, is skillful in the long-term service of being with what's true. Uh, or seeing a video, or doing, you know, really seeing what kind of resources are there in addition to the meditative process that help. And, you know, and I know you've been working with all of this, but I think just to re- remember and for everybody to hear that that's a very important part of practice is not to limit ourselves to any one idea of what practice is, but that practice is a whole way of relating to our life that includes mindfulness, includes compassion, and includes wisdom. And, the, and there's no wisdom without compassion. There's no wisdom without kindness. And... Very important, also, I'm saying a little more than I thought, but I I see also very important to pay attention to our idea of what's supposed to happen as we practice with something. Because usually there'll be some obvious uh, expectations that we put on what's supposed to happen. And then often there'll be unconscious ideas that, you know, if we're mindful or if we're even compassionate, something will change in some way that will get what we want or hope for. And we don't know if that's true. We don't know what will happen. And one of the hardest um, um, qualities to, to keep allowing in our practice is the quality of not knowing. Not knowing if it's going to get better. Not knowing if it's going to get worse. So often we'll predict one or the other pretty consistently. And then to see what happens as we keep moving towards now, towards the pain that's here now, and responding to it as best we can, and including a real broad uh, um, uh, array of practices about how to respond to it in any living moment, rather than some ideas about how we should respond. Pain's not easy. Uh, I spent three years uh, lying down almost all the time, uh, pretty much debilitated uh, with pain and illness, and then 10 or 15 years with just a lot of pain, I was able to move around more. Uh, and it's exa- pain is exhausting. Because it's 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 so it's hard to bear. I think just acknowledge that, and that when one is with pain, that the mental states can go crazy, and and to just acknowledge because it's so easy to the, to make it me, and and if, if and, and even that tendency is is a conditioned response. So we have to surrender to that truth and just to notice the screaming mind or the exhaustion and and to to me that's a case where it's not just snapping one's finger and though it'd be nice if we had a magic wand I, I didn't find one 
But that's where the, where, where, where the effort of surrender, the effort of, with all the other things that Eugene was saying too, but occasionally the effort of just bowing into it. It's like this. And, and I mean, I remember when I had so much pain in a hospital in Thailand once, and, and I didn't want the pain pills because I thought, you know, monks don't need pain pills. And so I refused them. And uh, in the middle of the night, I heard this screaming. I got woke up with screaming. It was me. And, uh, you know, so I accepted some pain pills as medicine. The Buddha allowed medicine, you know. He, was, he didn't just say you never can have medicine. And Ajahn Chah, my teacher, came to visit me. And, and I just uh, said, uh, you know, Loon Paul, which means Venerable Father. I said, Loon Paul, I want to get out of here. And he says, I'll send the police after you. And, which he made me laugh, which was nice. <laughs> then I said, well, what do you do about all this pain? What do you do? And he just said, you, know, you just need to know the pain. And it seems impossible, but in moments we just know it's like this. And it might seem that it's all wrong and it shouldn't be this way, but it is this way. And in retrospect, when I look back to some of that, I saw all sorts of edges of myself screaming and this and that, which rose up and then, and then kept dropping away. And through that, I got wider and more able to... To be with suffering became more compassionate. Who knows why? I don't know why it, it comes. But to just make moments of effort to know it's like this and to just, just feel it. And, and accompanied by the medicines or by the shuttling closer or farther away or occasionally finding the part of you that is my left cheek hurting. Oh God, that's all right. Ah, oh, gee, Ooh, there's some places. My left ear's not in trouble. Ah, and you know, sometimes we we it's like riding a bike, and, and we don't want to hit that hole, but we we kind of look at it, and and we just kind of go right to it, or <laughs> clunk, and and pain is like that, and and so which is a like a and to occasionally just to touch into the healthy parts and let the awareness open and then the parts of your body that are okay can mingle their blessing with the parts of body and mind that, that, that are. so this learning to expand the awareness to take the feet and the head and then to go closer and expand and, and when you need to turn away all, all that which Eugene was alluded to is, is cultivating more skill with knowing sensation and so I just encourage you to be patient with it because it's been the sickness has been the greatest teacher of my life because I was very willful and I could when I wanted something I just did it <laughs> and you know this was one of these things that then just my will didn't shift I couldn't shift it and that and that's where back to this other question that that was something that I had to work a lot on the softening the effort to Surrender.
this is the point where I start calling on people. So the questions about right livelihood and being in a job where one feels like one wants to leave, but you know, is practice to surrender where one is, but I don't want to surrender. Um, I'll say a little, maybe you'll add on. Um, the surrender, um, the practice as we're talking about it is to surrender where you are, but surrender doesn't mean passivity. The, the receptivity the receptivity of practice meaning opening to the way things are into how it is now into where am I what's the situation what's actually happening here being open to that um, implies um, doesn't imply being passive which it's often confused as a passivity but it does mean being receptive, being open to what's the truth of this moment, of this situation, of where I am, both inner and outer. And that being the basis for then right action. Um, right livelihood is in the, in the sila section of the um, Eightfold Noble Path, the section on virtue. Right speech, right livelihood, right action. Right action means we act. And so, you, if you want to act, we, we want to see as clearly as possible what's true and where are we acting, where, where is our action coming from. And then it's, it's fine to act. Then we get to have choice. This is not just, oh, you're just here. And, and as Kitty Sarah was saying, the surrender doesn't mean we just let whatever happens, happens. It's an art of being present and then being open to what's here and then seeing what's the appropriate response because there's many times where a situation is not right whether it's in work or relationship or you know in community and we have to say no or I want to change this or something needs to happen or we want to we want to have our impact we want to let what we understand what we see what we love our heart express itself so, um, have you seen the guidance counselor? No. You know, there's people who are really helpful if when we want to change careers to really consider that. 
there are times when it's really wise to to then change and um, but to inquire what what blocks us so sometimes it's a fear of letting go of the familiar what we know it's not quite right but then you know what's going to happen and uh, and wherever we end up you'll still be aware and it was lovely to reflect in in the monastery we used to think about four requisites and if you had these you have enough to live that which just supports you enough and you know like the, like the first was was food you know you just have enough to eat and you, you might get a lot of food but the Buddha, even if you just have one meal a day he said then, then you should be happy he said some clothing you might not have the best clothing but then he allowed his monks even if no one gives you anything you can pick up rags and sew them into robes so even the robes could protect you from the climate and help be modest and he said you know then be happy and shelter uh, you know, okay, it's nice if you have a mansion, but you know, even if, if nobody gives you any place to leave, live, he gave his monks and nuns permission to live under a tree. He said, just that's the ground floor, you know, just to have some protection. And but to, you know, to wherever you end up, just to have some shelter, and then some medicine. The medicine was the fourth one. He says, you might have fancy medicines, but even if you don't have fancy medicines, he says, you can make do with uh, fermented cow urine, you know, (laughs) which was a great uh, medicine. You might find that a useful tip one day. (laughs) Um, But to, to, you know, we worry, but I mean, I remember spending a year where I just had a little bit of food. I was sick, had a tiny little shack to live in, I was a monk and I had a lot of pain but I was living in a way I was happy with and I was so happy that year though I didn't have much and uh, you know I mean if if there's something in you that really senses that livelihood means what allows us to live if, it, if our livelihood requires us to do things that, that we really feel are exploiting or harming others or not really don't seem to be in harmony with, with with what our goals in life are. Then you know I think it's courageous and, and important to be able to to then let that go, even though it is the unknown, and uh, remind oneself that actually one uh, uh, might not be as much as one wants, but that one can uh, uh, find uh, contentment with with a small amount. I don't know your particular situation, but that's just some thoughts. You can hold it. Huh? You can hold it. Can okay. Hold it. Mm. Um, what, what should one consider when one's uh, pointing their life toward uh, the monastic life? The question is, uh, how does one set oneself up for for pondering entering the monastic life, and uh, that, that 
the questioner, uh, what's your name? What's your name? Your name? Kevin was was considering uh, considering that. I didn't really think it. I I was a monk for 15 years, and uh, it's not like I thought it all out, but I definitely experienced a lot of dukkha. I was at the point in my life when, on paper, I should be really happy. I had uh, been a national wrestling champion. I was a Phi Beta Kappa at Princeton. I was a Rhodes Scholar. I was at Oxford. I was in medical school to go back to medical school after my Rhodes Scholarship. And, you know, so on paper and in my mom's scrapbooks and all the trophies everywhere, you know, I was... It sounded great, and and you know I was happy for the blessings in my life, but also I, I just realized that there was there was suffering. I, I wasn't wise. I would get so turned around by emotions. I I felt so exhausted, so externally involved in winning and and being good enough. And I realized I felt there was a whole area that wasn't attended to enough. And so, but I. I uh, uh, I remember just going to the ruins of, a, of an old mon- an ancient Cistercian monastery in the north of England, and uh, just the peace of the ruins. The first thought was, "Gee, I think I'd like to be a monk." Just permission to be quiet, permission to be in the mood, permission to reflect on how things are but I I knew I I needed a teacher and I didn't quite know that's one thing I feel really grateful in my life I work really hard at things but I realize that it's useful sometimes to be with someone who knows more than you do who can encourage you yes eventually return the power to to you but I've always felt that that's a real blessing to meet someone who's wise and and so I guess what really made the difference in, in in you know, I had this thought of going into a monastery, but I didn't know where to go. And at the time, the particular uh, sermons that I was hearing in different places, uh, you know, if I went into a church, they upset me. I would get dogmatism upset me, and I didn't know much about Buddhism at that time. But then when I just heard of a teacher and then heard his voice, and heard wisdom then it was an intuitive thing you got to go where you there's got to be you don't you can't survive the monastic life you can't go through the pains and difficulties if there isn't some faith if there's something here and, and that faith has to be stirred by a moment of trust because you don't know what you're going to get you, you, there's got to be uncertainty but if there's a sense when you when you visit places or if you, you one needs to start with sensing something right about it, about the teachers, about the people, about the way they walk, the way they act. You know, then then it's and and to be discerning and, and just check it out. And so when I when I went to the monastery, they didn't say you got to sign up for this number of years. They just said, well, you can live here, but you you got to be harmless and and not kill anything and give up sex and no drugs and no alcohol and eat one meal a day and if you're willing to do that then you can stay but they didn't demand that I believe in anything or even like it but they just said accord with that 
but then when I had that permission, then the faith deepened, and I realized I I I, I like the life. So to me, one will never know unless one starts to visit. So if you have a, a, an affinity with uh, Buddhist practice, then I would suggest visiting the uh, Bayagiri Monastery. Have you ever been up there? Uh, there there's a monastery in the uh, from the Thai forest tradition, and is that Northern California? In Ukiah. And just see what it's like to meet. Or if you feel drawn to another tradition, just visit and and, meet, and then let your affinities, your intuitions just start to, to work. Um, what makes you feel that you're at a point where it would be appropriate to go to a monastery? Got me 
sort of like questioning, well, what, and I've heard from, from other people that have, um, other teachers, other Buddhist teachers that have been in, in Southeast Asia, they say that how much, how important they are to the people of those countries and that they really, really revere them greatly or as far as in this country, uh, Cistercians or in the case of uh, Thomas Merton, uh, Trappist monks are, you know, considered something that's stowed away in some monastery and they make fruitcakes and they send them out every year when it's time to open the door the bourbon fudge or yeah. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, just to, to repeat a little bit uh, your, your reflections on, on your own circumstance. Uh, you, you shared the, just a sense of weariness, weariness with the rat race, but it, 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 it's, it's deeper than that and, and, and facing dying, and aging, illness, and uh, just uh, reflecting that in some societies in Asia that the that the monastic life is is monks and nuns are revered. They're the centers. Oh, they tremendously. They're they're the centers of communities, and it's symbiotic in those communities. Uh, the community lay people provide food and shelter, and then the monks and nuns provide the guidance. And whereas in, in, in uh, but there, there was a, something important, this wondering, am I just running away? Uh, our, our teacher, Ajahn Chah, before someone was ready to enter the monastery, the first question he would ask was, Boo am I? Which in Thai is, have you had enough? Are you weary? If you're, Boo, yeah, and because that's important. If you're not, he would say, you know, go, go do some more. Uh, because cause, cause, uh, cause they, are you ready to die he would sometimes say because then you have the kind of courage and the willingness to because to be a, a monk and nun in the way that I know you think you're, you might be running away from certain things but you're I would say you're leaving certain things to face squarely the human condition because your body is with you pain is with you your mind is with you and one has the opportunity in the circumstances uh, to to face that, to see that clearly, and to to uh, uh, ask ask important questions. What what is worth learning in this space between when I'm born and when I'm dying? And uh, I. I have lived in those societies where where the monks were were uh, you know really revered and also used and 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 when you when you have people giving to you every day then it it made me more determined to work harder to face the body face the mind face mood and and try to ask the question where is true well-being where's true happiness where's the true sense of ease come from and how can uh, can my life be a blessing, uh, a true blessing? And uh, I think a society, it's important that a society has this option in it. And uh, I, 
I, uh, I'm glad that there are opportunities in this society, and I hope in the coming decades that the contemplatives will be uh, recognized for their important contribution. Yeah. Um, I've never been a monk, and. Um, uh, when I first started practicing, right after I started practicing, my daughter was born, and I realized I wasn't going to be a monk. You know, I wasn't going to go off to Asia and just leave. Um, but I've often felt the inspiration of the monastic community. This is not so much answering your question, but I want to just put this in the room. Um, the inspiration being, how could I... Um, how can um, what does it mean to look at what the monastic life offers us or offers one and then how can I begin to um, transpose that into lay life in a way that's realistic and works um, but centers me in the same way that it centers a monk or a nun so that the dharma is the center of their life for, for, for as an outsider, when I look, I see that the life is centered around this question that uh, Kitty Sarah was saying about what is, what is well-being, what is freedom, what is the deepest truth, and how is my life organized to address those questions. And I think, I believe, and I attempt personally to organize my life around that, those questions. And I think... It, it gets organized differently for different people and I think it's a really important option to consider and uh, personally I'm, um, I, I think of myself as a part-time monk right? when I go on retreat I take on that form of eating what's given of living among community in a way that's harmless according to the rules of that community, of being silent, of having my total life organized around the contemplative inquiry. And, and I love that. And then the question for me is, how do I organize the rest of my life, even though it's a lay life, in, the, in some way, shape, or form that allows those questions to keep being at the center, to allow those values to keep being expressed. And um, I, think you're, I think it's a great um, inquiry for you right now. And I want to just echo what um, Kitty Sarah said about go. Actually, just go to the monasteries and you, you really get a feel. And for some people, you get to the monastery and the draw, it's just clear. Or maybe some people it's not clear, but you hang out and you start to learn, you get comfortable, maybe that's your way. Or some people go and it's like really clear, no, this is not in this life, that's not my way. It, it really depends. I, I, this is a little bit related and a little aside, but Jack Cornfield sometimes talks about when he started thinking about becoming a monk. And, and it's really, he said, when he knew he was about 13 or 14, and he was reading a book called uh, The Third Eye, and it was about Ramtha, or not Ramtha, some, some kind of mystical Tibetan monastic figure that was like, you know, kind of a science fiction book. 
and and he said it had a huge impact on him, and that that was it. He just knew he wanted to become a monk. Reading this book, I can't remember. Yeah, yeah. So what's the name? Love Singh Rampa. Yeah, Love Singh Rampa. Yeah. yeah, I think you can still get copies, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but but what I'm saying is, you don't know, you don't know, as Kitty Sarah was saying, until you start to investigate or see if you're called. Good luck. Let's see. Okay. Well, Kitty Sarah, last time you were here, um, you spoke about your mother uh, having died, and now um, you couldn't be here part last week because your father's had an illness. And I just wanted to say my sympathy. And um, and how do you practice and stay present with sort of all this loss and uh, grief? The question was uh, remembering that the uh, last time I was here was right after my mother died and that uh, I had to postpone my visit this time and curtail my stay to go back because my father's sudden illness and how do I work with all this uh, loss and grief. Uh, my mother's passing was so graceful. I just rejoice. I just rejoiced at her that she could let go so gracefully. That uh, the storm hadn't come yet in in Africa and that the phone line worked and that I got to talk to her in her bed and she just was so clear and said, I'm just letting go, just like you said, Kitty Sorrow. <laughs> I'm just letting it unfold. She said, you'll need a bonfire to burn all my stuff. <laughs> And she, says, and she says, you know, I don't miss, I don't, she's 87, I don't miss playing golf or, you know, taking all those pills anymore. She says, you know, I'm just, uh, it's, per- you know, I worried, but it's just, it's so perfect. It's just working out perfect. And and I, I, I love you, and I, you know, I've just had such a blessed life. And she said goodbye to everyone and then died the next morning. That was, that's easy. That was beautiful. That's beautiful. But then my dad, who was 62 years with her, and he was convinced that, you know, he was going to go first. And so, you know, he, and so mom on her last night was, they sat up all night holding hands, and mom was consoling him. Mo, you know, it's better this way because I couldn't have got you to the hospital. And, you know, he, he just said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, dad is 91, and he's been, Struggling in this house that they built together that's still there uh, out on Lake Chickamauga. And, you know, he's been getting weaker, but he's, he's a determined man. He's, he's a 91, driving every day, walking every day. His 91st birthday party a month ago, he wouldn't sit down. He insisted on serving everyone. He wouldn't sit down because it was his joy and duty. So, you know, we come once a year from Africa and Tanissa and I were with him at a restaurant. We just had a lovely meal and his head dropped forward and I, and I could tell something was wrong and then I rushed over and held his heart and said, Dad, you all right? And he said, oh, must have fallen asleep. But then he didn't feel good. And then he, he then collapsed a few minutes later. But it happened to be with us there, a waitress, emergency trained, 
a retired policeman that helped catch him when he collapsed in my arms. And the ambulance came in a minute, and we were next one, two minutes from a hospital. And so, you know, in the hospital, he just said, I shouldn't be alive. He was thinking that, you know, maybe like Mom, he should, he should have just gone. And it's going to cause you guys trouble. It's, it's so wrong. It's going to cause you trouble. And, and you know, the, the fact is, it, he was next to a hospital. and uh, it's been really hard intensive care two weeks and hospital and now in rehab and you know he's been through such difficult states of pain and complications with medicines and and then depression and you know it's all wrong and, and yet and you know very but anyway by some miracle you know he's He's uh, coming back. His mind's still clear. He's been able to go home for a few hours the last few days. He's walking again. He's finally able to breathe without the oxygen. And and so, you know, we'll just see. But though it was really difficult and he can be really stubborn and I didn't know what to do and... uh, uh, right before I came, you know, he wanted me. You got to go out there and do that retreat. He says, you know. And so my brother came and took over, and and you know we cried right as I left because you know he, he was a bit angry about not being able to do the things he used to do and messing up our lives. And if I try to explain, oh, it's a privilege to be able to just be with you through this, Dad. He goes, no. But you know we cried, and and I says, you know, it's been a roller coaster, Dad. And he says, yeah, it has. And uh, he's now softer. His emotions are really close, and he gets so touched by little things. And and actually, uh, you know, if he were to go tonight or tomorrow, to me it's been really special this this last bit of time. My intuition is that he's going to have a little more time of ease. We're going to get him home, out of the hospital, this beautiful place on the lake that he built, and uh, just in, in uh, before when mom would say, Mo, you know you should practice letting go like Kitty Sorrow says. <laughs> and I say, I'm trying, Janie. I'm, 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 I'm trying. And, and I, and, and, you know, dad is, you know, he's, <laughs> he's even using the stroller that mom used. And he's, 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 he's working on it. And so we're all getting transformed in the process. Mm. Thank you so much, Kitty Sarah. Really, I'm so happy you're here. Really, so grateful. So we're going to end in a moment. Let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.